1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Sociology podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rebecca L. Davis, author of the book, Public Confessions, The Religious Conversions That Changed American Politics. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Thank you for having me on your channel. Great. I wonder if you could then begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
0: I'm a history professor at the University of Delaware and I teach and research the histories of sex and sexuality, gender and religion in American life. And I've been doing that work since I was in graduate school in history uh, a couple decades ago. And I have come to this project from A longstanding curiosity about the ways in which people's private lives, their personal identities, their desires, shape the world around us, how they have a broader social, cultural, and political importance. So the first book I wrote was about the history of marriage counseling and guidance in the United States, really tracing that history from the 1920s and 1930s into the early 20th century, early 21st century, And what I found were conversations going on in the spaces of social workers' offices, um, between clergy and the members of their congregations, as well as across the pages of magazines and in clinical psychology about the way that people's sexual identities and desires shaped the present and future of American marriage. And I saw there the development of a real positive value, a real sense that heterosexuality had a really positive importance in American life, as well as lots of people pushing back against that idea and wanting to think about marriage and gender in much more expansive ways. And I then also talked in that book about how by the end of the 20th and early 21st century, there were increasing efforts within our national politics to reassert The heterosexual nature of marriage, and to link those private behaviors and desires, even that people have in their sexuality and in their commitment, committed relationships, to our national politics, to give government support to certain kinds of families and certain kinds of sexual relationships. So, the project that I most recently completed, and that is now in the form of this book, Public Confessions. I came at uh, with a similar set of curiosities, this time thinking about how do sexual desires, sexual identities, sexual politics meet up with what people think about God or the divine, about religion. And I initially thought I would find traces of that story in the lives of sex radicals who were sort of self-consciously nonconformist people, often, artists or writers, um, activists living in places like Greenwich Village in the 19 teens and 20s, or in communal or sort of utopian experiments out West. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't find a story there that would, I could put together into a book. But I was at the Library of Congress in Washington, DC, trying there to find some trail I could follow and instead, I came across the papers of Claire Booth Luce, who was, during her lifetime, one of the most famous women in the United States. She's not nearly as well known today, but you know, most people today know the name Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, in the 1930s and 40s, Claire Booth Luce, Luce's name was just about as recognizable to most Americans. And Luce had been a very... Uh, esteemed playwright. Her play, The Women, was the first production with an all-female cast on Broadway. She had traveled to war zones as a reporter. And she was, in 1946, in her second term in Congress, she represented a district from Connecticut. And she made international news in February 1946 because she converted to Catholicism and did so under the tutelage of Monsignor Fulton Sheen, who was at the time, a star of radio and was soon uh, would soon be a star of television as well, sort of presenting a, uh, you know, trying to make uh, this very American presentation of what it meant to be Roman Catholic and what Catholics valued. And from there, I, I really became very curious to see if this was sort of a one-off, was, was loose as this really notorious convert that hundreds and hundreds of people were writing letters to, telling her what they thought about her conversion. Was she an anomaly, a blip, or was there a bigger story? Um, And I can also say that I, I come from a family where many people have converted religion, and it's always been something that I've kept in mind as I've studied the topic as a scholar. You know, People who work in American religion often, too often, I think, talk about it as something that's that is, the person is this whatever, you know, this faith or that faith. When in fact, for so many people, the religious affiliation is fluid or has changed over the course of their lifetimes. They are becoming whatever religion they are in different ways at different times in their lives. So as I have throughout my career, I was really fascinated by the ways that people's very personal decisions about what they believe about God or don't believe, um, what what rituals have meaning to them or that or don't, um, to think about that as something that really reverberates in our culture and is politically
1: significant. Now tell the audience about the criticism that Claire faced being a Catholic during that time period in American history.
0: There is no way to underestimate how intense anti-Catholicism was in the United States, uh, certainly in the 19th century, but also well into the 20th century. It's not something that we really see so much today, but it was totally mainstream, unfortunately, uh, in Claire Booth Luce's lifetime. So there was this longstanding Protestant suspicion of Catholics as more loyal to the Pope than they were to their elected government representatives. Um, And this was often a very sexualized stereotype. So uh, there were these stories circulated of these duplicitous priests who held nuns as sort of sexual captives but also this fear of priests as these very powerful charismatic people who sort of took over the the free thinking minds of the people who followed them. So there was this Protestant stereotype of Catholicism as coercive, of Catholics as people who sort of just blindly followed whatever their priests and bishops told them to do, and that this was fundamentally incompatible with American democracy. We're supposed to have this enormous value placed on freedom of conscience. We're people with free will, we we shape our destinies. How could a people who just do what someone tells them to do, which was what this stereotype said, how could they really fit into the United States? And Claire Luce had already Shown herself to be somebody who resisted what other people told her she could or couldn't do in her life. She was one of only seven women in Congress um, when she um, first took office um, in the early 1940s. And in becoming a Roman Catholic, she also pushed back against those stereotypes. And she said, No, in fact, it is the activity of my strong, independent mind. And my deep reading into philosophy and religious teachings, that I have come to understand the truth. And my truth is that Roman Catholicism is what God has given us as the faith. So, she, um, you know, we, we can remind ourselves too that even when John F. Kennedy was running for president in 1960, major Protestant leaders in American life were organized in a group against his election because of his religion. They thought it would be dangerous to American democracy to have a Catholic in the White House.
1: You know, you focused on another person, Whitaker Chambers. Uh, Tell us about his conversion into the Quaker religion.
0: Whitaker Chambers is probably a name that many listeners will have familiarity with from what was known as the Hiss Chambers case, and he became famous or notorious, depending upon your point of view, for saying under oath and to media organizations that Alger Hiss, who was this very well regarded um, New Deal liberal, uh, that saying that Hiss was actually a spy had been giving government secrets to uh, people like Chambers, who in the 30s was someone who ferried documents between people and who had these government jobs and could get their hands on them to his Soviet uh, connections, who would then, I I suppose, bring them back to their higher-ups. And Chambers had been sort of a social outcast for most of his life, um, dropped out of college, and became a communist in the 1920s. He then moved into this role as a sort of full-time spy by the thirties. And he would later write that it was in the late thirties as he was becoming disenchanted with communism, there had been the purges and the Moscow trials, the show trials, and he um, was hearing about people who sort of spoke out of turn and then suddenly disappeared and were never heard from again. He was getting increasingly paranoid about the safety of his, himself and his family and he said he looked at his daughter who was a young toddler and couldn't imagine that anything but god could have created some, something so perfect and after that began to move away from communism break with the underground and go mainstream and he got a job at time magazine he was a gifted writer and there were some colleagues there editors there who were episcopalians and initially that's where Chambers went. He was initiated into the Episcopal Church, um, but he did not feel at home there and within a year or two had joined a Quaker uh, meeting in Maryland. He lived on a farm in Maryland with his family. Um, So his conversion then became relevant in the His Chambers trial because it was part of how Alger Hiss's team tried to discredit Chambers and portray him as mentally unstable. And here's where, you know, my interest as a historian of sexuality really have met up with this project. Um, Chambers made clear in his published memoir that it was he committed himself to being a family man, as he also became to believe in God. But what's clear from FBI documents and and oral histories is that Chambers had also um, had a number of affairs with men, uh, throughout that first part of his life. And even during the years of his, the early years of his marriage. And so he told the FBI in, um, the late 1940s in a sort of private letter he gave to them. Uh, he said, you know, I found God, I gave up communism and I gave up sex with men effectively that all of these things were part of a package. And so being this sort of heroic, heterosexual patriot and doing so as a Christian were part of his whole new understanding of who he was. And Chambers um, rarely spoke about his Quaker, his his bonds to Quaker faith. His He'd had a Quaker grandmother and said that he thought that planted the seed for him. Um, but it was very much part of how he presented himself to the public. and. There were other ex-communists who, in a similar fashion, either converted to or recommitted themselves to Christianity, often as Roman Catholics and often with Fulton Sheen's mentorship. Um, and so for Chambers, though, the becoming a Christian was also about becoming a safe American, someone you didn't need to worry about. Um, you know, being stealing secrets or trying to undermine the U.S.
1: government. In Chapter 3, you talked about the body snatchers. (laughs) Can you explain this a little bit more? Sure.
0: So one of the themes that kept coming up and that I wasn't, you know, when you start off on a big project like this, you have a series of questions. And you take those questions with you to the archive, you take those questions with you to the newspapers and magazines from the time that you're reading, to recorded audio and images that you can find about the people and the events that you're studying. But there is a tremendous amount that you find that you had no expectation of finding. And there were many of those surprises for me with this book, and perhaps none so much as how... Often, and from how many people, I was hearing fears of mind control, hearing fears that there were these external forces who were stripping away from the American people this ability to freely choose what they thought and what they believed. So, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, if we have, you know, the United States is in this global Cold War, and there's this fear of, you know, the atheist totalitarian Soviet Union. And opposing it is this God-fearing democratic United States invested in capitalism, invested in freedom of conscience and ideas of liberty in its sort of formal self-presentation. And if ultimately though, people aren't making free choices, then the whole democratic project sort of collapses. So there was this, you know, in the in the aftermath of World War II, there was very high level uh, intellectual work about what became known as the authoritarian personality. How did all of these Germans, these cultured, educated Germans, come to believe um, Nazism? Come to be loyal to ideas about Aryan supremacy? How did entire nations of people? Align with fascism, right? How do charismatic leaders implant these ideas in people in ways such that they seem to cease to think for themselves or to make independent decisions? And so, but this idea was not just something circulating in highfalutin intellectual publications, it was pervasive in American popular culture too. So there were lots of comic books about. Um, you know, invaders who controlled the minds of, of everyone they saw with lasers, you know, all the new technologies that were coming out um, um, during World War II and with the arms race of the Cold War often played a role in these, um, you know, was sort of a character in these spheres. And similarly, this idea of body snatchers, or um, and today we see it in all the uh, work on zombies, this idea that there are these nefarious external sources that can co-opt a person's mind. Um, And not long after this, the word brainwashing entered American um, popular culture. It was sort of a loose translation of a Chinese term um, and was part of how Americans were trying to figure out why some Americans would agree with communism. Why had some young GIs who had fought in the Korean war and were captured, By the North Koreans, why had they wanted to stay when there was a prisoner of war exchange? There were a a number of men, about 20 or 22 men who didn't, who chose not to be repatriated. And so had they, had had their brains been co-opted, there were people who were prisoners of, um, of communist regimes in Europe who were sort of captured and then went in front of microphones later and seemed to be dazed and um, blank in their expression and regurgitating um, communist dogma. And so, oh my goodness, had their, had their brains been taken over? Um, and so that the pervasiveness of that fear was something I hadn't anticipated, but which ultimately became a key part of how I understood what was going on.
1: You know, you talked about religion in the 1950s, especially Reverend Norman Vincent Peale and Dr. Billy Graham, Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. How did religion play such a big role in people's lives in the 50s?
0: Right. You know, there's there was a religious rival revival of sorts going on in the United States in the 1950s. And it goes back to um, well, it goes back a ways, but certainly during World War II. Um, the propaganda that the U.S. military and U.S. government put out for what this war was all about was increasingly framed as, you know, we're out there, we're not just fighting Germans, we're not just fighting the Japanese, we're fighting for the American family, and we're fighting for the Christian and Jewish values, mostly Christian though values, that were at the founding of our nation and that are fundamental to who we are as Americans today. And That, and with the dawn of the Cold War in the late 1940s, this sense that what makes us different from other nations and what makes us strong in the face of communism is is the intensity of our religious faith. So the 1950s is when in God we trust is added to our currency, when under God is added to the Pledge of Allegiance, there are the first national prayer breakfasts. Um, And so public religion, religion in political speech, uh, all of those are on the rise, but also um, American religious congregations are flush with cash in a way that they haven't been before. New churches and synagogues are going up in the suburbs. Um, More people are attending and participating in American religious life. So there is are, there are sort of this widespread sense of a religious resurgence, but it's not just about individual people's participation. It's linked to this national project of saying that being Christian and also Jewish are part of what make America strong.
1: You also said that in 1976, that was the year of evangelical awakening. Tell us about a little bit about that.
0: Sure. And it was a a newspaper. I think it was um, Newsweek that declared 1976, the year of the evangelical. And they did so because there was another sort of religious revival afoot. Um, We are accustomed today to seeing evangelical Protestants as sort of very visibly and intentionally visible visible in American politics and public life. But that really hadn't been the case um, uh, for the decades prior. And in this, with people like um, the Reverend Billy Graham, really front and center, a whole national and international network of churches and organizations had created this fast evangelical infrastructure in the United States by the 70s. And just at that point, evangelicals were starting to leverage that organization and all those resources to shape American political life in greater ways. So, um, pushing for particular candidates or getting certain issues to become hot button ones in upcoming elections. And there were several very prominent converts or born again converts who helped uh, spread that message to the American public and talk about how their faith was the American faith and how their values should therefore be the American
1: values. In in chapter six, you talked about um, African Americans in this redemption. And on page 147, you said, quote, African Americans, converts. Similarly operated in these stories as props of the white Christian affirmation. Their own discoveries of Jesus redeeming love proof that white evangelicals could not be racist, even those like Coulson, who were architects of white supremacist political strategy at the highest level of government. Explain that a little bit.
0: Sure. Um, So Chuck Coulson was Known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He came aboard, um, he was part of the 1968 campaign and served as an advisor uh, to Nixon in the White House. He's a lawyer by training and he kept the enemies list. He did a lot of the dirty work for Nixon and he was also a strategist. And one of the Nixon administration strategies was to um, cultivate white grievance. So to help create a narrative of, you know, look at there had been these, you know, initial victories within the American Civil Rights Movement. There was a Civil Rights Act of 1964, a Voting Rights Act of 1965. There had been immigration reform. The women's movement was making gradual um, progress toward getting legal protections for women and um, more equal funding for women's education and things such as that. And a strategy, an explicit strategy um, among Nixon and his advisors was to cultivate white grievance and say, look at what all these people are taking from you. And they um, did so through their rhetoric, and they also did so um, through the way that they campaigned and tried to um, bring these other, bring people who felt like they were being left behind into their coalition. So there were, you know, the faith, so the sense of what it means to be an evangelical to be born again is, an, is a theological premise. It's not a racial one. Um, and there have been, there were millions of African-Americans who understood themselves then and now as um, people who've had these experiences of Knowing God's love, knowing this person's relationship with Jesus, and committing their lives to um, witnessing to the love of Jesus um, in their own lives. Um, but what this evangelical movement that Colson was part of in the 70s was trying to do was center a very particular kind of evangelicalism as the future of the United States. Um, and for the most part, it was an evangelicalism that was far more interested in converting than it was in making changes in American um, social disparities. So Colton, for, for instance, was, had been in prison for his role in the Watergate cover-up and became an advocate for prison reform. But mostly what he meant was he wanted to make ministry more available to imprisoned people. So this is, the 70s is really when mass incarceration is accelerating. And he thought that um, converting inmates was the solution to the prison problem. And so African-Americans who converted were very useful to this white-dominated movement. And one of the most um, prevalent examples was Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, Cleaver had been the Minister of Information for the Black Panthers in Oakland and had gone into exile um, because he was fearful that he, he, he was had a parole violation and feared that if he was rearrested, he would be killed by the police or by prison guards. So he went into exile. And that was in 1968. He came back in 1975 in a negotiated deal Served out his sentence, and then said that while he was in prison, he was born again. And so, he hit the lecture circuit, talking about you know how he'd been so wrong that black nationalism and black power were errors, and now he had this new understanding. And folks like Colson just ate it up, and they shared the stage with him. They helped get him funding for his new ministry. But they also really expected him to toe the line. They expected him to present evangelicalism the way they saw it. Um, And Cleaver ended up not doing that. He became disenchanted with evangelicalism and had a had actually went through a few other religious um, communities in the rest of his life. Um, But convert. But so long as he was in the movement and behaving in a way that they saw as appropriate. Um, evangelical publications and radio networks and televangelists were having him on their shows and putting his photo on the cover of their magazines over and over and over again as sort of this poster child for the fact that nowhere we couldn't be racist. Look, this very racially aware um, Black leader um, is one of us.
1: Now, you did talk about Sammy Davis Jr. and Muhammad Ali, Give us a little brief summary of their criticisms that the society in general had about them converting.
0: Right. So Sammy Davis Jr. became um, Jewish in 1960. He talked about being a Jew. He he described self-described as a Jewish person before that, but he formally converted in 1960. And Muhammad Ali announced that he was a member of the Nation of Islam in 1964, and. You know, in Davis's case, people really made fun of him um, for or said that, you know, this is just a career move. He just wants Jewish nightclub owners and Jewish audiences in Vegas to, you know, support his shows. Um, And a lot of African-American Christians, you know, said this is just more proof that Sammy wants to be white. Right. That this is a entertainer who's just trying to please audiences and has sold out with Muhammad Ali, the criticism was much more intense and, um, was again, a lot of ridicule, um, from the, the reporters who covered his career as a boxer had a very low opinion of a lot of the men that they covered, um, in the sport. And they saw them as these sort of, um, brutish and not very intelligent people. There's a great deal of racism in the reporting on boxing. So, um, one of the things that happened for Ali was that, you know, he had struggled with literacy throughout his life and was um, really denigrated for being unintelligent. And so he faced that criticism, but then also the mainstream black press, um, there were lots of African-American newspapers um, in the 1960s and, and of course, magazines like Ebony and, though the publishers and editors of those magazines were very sympathetic to the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and very hostile for the most part to the nation of Islam. So when Muhammad Ali converted, they also saw him as embracing hate rather than reconciliation. Uh, And both Davis and Ali responded to their critics, to answer your question, they both responded to their critics by saying, this is the freedom that I have, right? I, I get to choose what I believe. And I know that I am a Jew. I know that I am a Muslim. And, you know, it's really not for anybody else to tell me what my faith is.
1: And lastly, in 2021, do you think that religion is still strong in the presentation of people in our society?
0: Well, I love that question. Um, I love the way you've phrased it. Yes, I think so. And I think in a couple different ways, it's still prevalent in how people self-present. On the one hand, um, a lot of people share aspects of themselves on social media or through, um, you know, in their communities about their paths to healing their forms of self-discovery and spirituality is very often part of that, whether or not it's a spirituality connected to a formal religious organization. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't but this idea that we are all seekers, that there is some higher meaning or um, revealed truth that we are in pursuit of about ourselves, about the world around us. Yes, I think that remains very much a part of our popular culture. The other thing that I see, though, is a real narrowing of what religion means in public life. And I see this as part of the legacy of that evangelical movement of the 1970s and thereafter to the extent that religious in our american politics is too often reduced to mean christian and a very and and very often a, a particular kind of christian so for example we are today seeing debates over religious freedom and whether we have sufficient constitutional protections for religious freedom but the plaintiffs in these cases are defending a narrow definition of religion um, and of what freedom for that religion involves in a way that really privileges a mostly white Christian um, and uh, pro-marriage, pro-normative gender roles kind of worldview, which makes it very difficult for people Um, such as President Biden, who is very much a person of faith and committed to faith, to get his religious voice to register in American politics, because the the public conversation about religion and politics has been very effectively um, sort of circumscribed to one particular expression of Christianity.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell the audience, what are you working on next?
0: Oh, I'd love to. I am writing a book that is um, with Live Right Press, and it is a single volume history of sex in America. It's an ambitious project. Um, And what I'm trying to do is learn from so much scholarship that's been done over the last 30 and 40 years by historians of sexuality and gender in the United States, and write about it in a way that's narrative and will hopefully reach a wide audience.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you for this interview.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.